Welcome back to Air Power and International Security. I'm really excited today. I think we've got such a fantastic episode lined up. When I first decided or first thought about having a, an episode on the space race, I never thought I'd be able to get such a distinguished speaker. Today we have Dr. Roger Launius speaking to us about the US and the USSR locked in this space race, this race to the moon during the height of the Cold War. Now, Roger is a fantastic guest to cover this subject. He started his career as a civilian historian in the US Air Force and later went on to become the chief historian at NASA. So I'm delighted he agreed to join me and discuss this fascinating period of history. Being the chief historian at NASA is almost like a dream job for me. Witnessing human space exploration firsthand and getting to speak to the astronauts themselves about what it's like in space and going to space. Now, this must have been a truly extraordinary job. I'm very jealous if you can't already tell. So strap in. This is going to be a fantastic episode. Here is Roger talking about the space race. OK, Roger, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. So before we start talking about the space race and how it developed, I wonder if I could just ask, what prompted the space race? Was there a specific event uh, that created this competition between the USA and the USSR? It's no one thing that created the environment to, that uh, led to the space race in the 1950s and 1960s, but it was a succession of things. And if you look at the historical record, you'll see a lot of sort of warning signs and people you know, raising their hands and waving them about uh, about how things are are starting to go in the wrong direction for the United States. Clearly, at the end of World War II, the U.S. and the Soviet Union was poised to be rivals. No question about that. And uh, both of those countries had won World War II, and were sort of dominant in the world. But they had competing economic and political positions. At the end of the war, the Americans viewed themselves as pretty much on top. They had developed an atomic bomb. They had used it uh, with catastrophic results in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and, and the Soviets, of course, had no, no weapon like this yet. There was obvious efforts to build one, and the American intelligence community was seeking every piece of information they could about that. But in 1949, the Soviets exploded their first atomic bomb. So four years later, in essence, the Russians took, uh, were able to, um, to go on a parity with the Americans. In 1952, the Americans uh, uh, exploded the first hydrogen bomb. 53, the Soviets did so. So they're catching up in terms of time. By 1957, the, uh, with both sides working very aggressively to develop ballistic missiles. It, it looks like the Soviets have a capability the Americans cannot match with the launch of Sputnik in 1957. Not only did they launch Sputnik in October of 1957, beating the Americans, it was not a threat in any real sense of the term because it was a scientific satellite, it was a part of the International Geophysical Year. Uh, the international partners associated with the International Geophysical Year knew it was coming. Um, but it surprised a number of people who weren't sort of in the know in these things. And then, of course, less than a month later, they did the same thing by launching Sputnik 2 with a dog aboard, Laika, 
Uh, and at that point, it wasn't just a coincidence. It wasn't just happenstance that the, that the Soviets were now ahead. They, they had demonstrated this capability now a couple of times. And, uh, and, and, and the belief was, and engineers will tell you that they're not exactly the same thing, but for the rank and filer, it didn't matter. If you can put a satellite over our heads, you can bring a ballistic missile with an atomic warhead down on our heads. And that's where the real concern starts to arise. The Americans then publicly announced they're gonna launch their own International Geophysical Year satellite on the 6th of December of 1957. And they invited the press and the whole world to come watch and they blew it up on the launch pad. So it's three strikes and you're out. American failure coupled with two Soviet successes. And that really sets the stage for a space race. Mm -hmm. The result of that, of course, is the creation of NASA the next year and, uh, and the assigning of civilian capabilities in space. And that was done on purpose. In part, it was the result of desire to sort of look like this is a purely non-military activity. It's also, quite frankly, a cover for a whole variety of, of military activities leading towards space, most importantly, reconnaissance satellites. But be that as it may, the creation of NASA the next year, the establishment, well, first the passage and the establishment of a mechanism to undertake this, the National Defense Education Act of 1958 put all kinds of money into uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate level education in science, in what we would now refer to as STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and expanded that ultimately into K through 12 education in the US with the, with the sense that we are behind technologically and we have to catch up. Other nations were doing the same things. The British, pursue the same sort of activities. In the aftermath of Sputnik, there's lots of, of newspaper reports in the, in the British press uh, about how we are falling behind and we have to do things to catch up. So that is sort of the context for this Cold War space race. And it is fueled by this sense of rivalry between the Americans and the Russians, by the need on the part of the Americans that, that they must demonstrate technological capability before the world. And if we don't do that, we will somehow lose this Cold War. People alive in the late 1950s, early 1960s, at the time that the space race is, is supreme, realized, as we realize today, that the future belongs to the civilization that masters science and technology. There's no question about that. So that demonstration of that mastery uh, is critical both for ourselves, for the stimulation of capability along those lines, and for the impressing of the rest of the world. Because both sides, both the Americans and the Russians, would like to entice other nations, especially non-aligned nations, to their coalition. And that was a really significant part of what this was all about. Apollo going to the moon, that was its strategic importance. 
There's no doubt that the Soviets take an early lead in this race. You've mentioned Sputnik already. You could probably add uh, Yuri Gagarin being the first person in space in, was it April 61? So the Americans are, are, are falling behind. The Americans really weren't behind. It looked like it at that particular time because of the Soviet very public successes, the two Sputniks, a, a, a few other... Um, robotic missions to the moon in 1958, 59, and 60, obviously the Gagarin launch in 1961, it looked like they could do nothing wrong. Now, they were hiding, as a closed society, they were able to do this. They were hiding all kinds of failures, including one in 1960 in which they blew up a rocket on the launch pad uh, in which a bunch of generals and other very senior people at, in the Soviet Union were there at the site and were killed. Uh, in, in the launch accident. Now, that was never admitted until the, the Cold War was over and the Soviet Union had collapsed. So uh, the Americans were not really behind at all. Uh, it just appeared that way publicly. And, and since much of this was about sort of a public demonstration, that means it was quite important. I never knew that the Soviets were having so many failures uh, and killing so many people in the process of of their attempt to, to get to space. How effective are projects like uh, Mercury and Gemini? How well do they bring America into, into the future, into the space age? So what became the Mercury program originated in the Department of Defense in the US in, in 1950, late 57, early 58. Uh, the Air Force, of course, uh, would like to have run it. And uh, roles and missions are always a big challenge when, uh, inside the federal government, and especially in, inside the military. And, um, and so every service, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, they all had their plans to, to move forward with the spaceflight, including human spaceflight. The program that got the farthest was an Air Force project called Man in Space Soonest, with the worst acronym ever, MISS. That's a shocking name for any operation. <laughs> and um, they, they brought the NACA, which was the predecessor to NASA and was, was focused mostly on aeronautical research. Hugh Dryden, who was the director of the NACA at the time, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, was, um, was happy to become a part of this, but he basically said that, that they, they should run it, not, not the military. Military would be a bad place for this to take place. And uh, with the legislation to create NASA in 1958 and the official opening of the doors of NASA as an organization on the 1st of October, 1958, President Eisenhower took that program, MISS, if you will, um, and assigned it to NASA. Uh, the Air Force has never forgiven NASA for that, but nonetheless, uh, they took it and they ran with it, and it became the Mercury program. It was highly successful. Uh, it demonstrated that the Americans had a, a, some serious capabilities when it came to this. It was also a program and not just a one-off space shot. And while Sergei Korolev, the chief designer in the Soviet Union, wanted to create a coherent program, he had difficulty doing so. Uh, he was enmeshed in the bureaucracy of the Soviet military. And, uh, and consequently, these sort of efforts, which were non-military and had no military purpose that the generals could see, uh, 
was uh, always got, uh, you know, sort of short shrift from them and they didn't want to fund it. And it took the politicos like Khrushchev to sort of put money into those areas uh, over the objections of the generals. And so he was always fighting for resources and never had the same kind of support that the Americans had with, with NASA. And so the Mercury program was very solid. It, it, it took a stepwise approach toward developing the technology, suborbital flights followed by orbital flights with a little bit more duration, a little more complexity to each one of them. And, uh, and it helped to, to overcome a measure of, of, of the sense that the Soviets were ahead of us in the 1961 to 63 time frame. But it never really completely overcame that. It took Gemini, uh, a program that was established after the announcement to go to the moon for Apollo in 1961 as, a, as, as sort of a bridge between the Mercury effort and what would be needed to accomplish the Apollo missions. And Gemini, which flew in 1965 and 66, really demonstrated to the world what the Americans could do. And JFK is elected president. Is it his energy? Is it his passion for space power and U.S. projection into space that drives the space race forward. Obviously, when he is elected, he announces that America will have a man on the moon within a decade. And is it JFK that understands? I mean, you've already set out what the rationale behind the space race was. Is it JFK is JFK the person that understands this more than anybody, in terms of political figures, at least, anyway? And is this why we see the emergence of the Apollo program out of JFK's rhetoric? And once established, once people have got this idea in their head, how many Apollo missions do they think it will take to actually get to the moon? Well, nobody knew at the beginning how many missions it was going to take. Uh, and, and, and let me just back up a little bit and say a little bit about the Apollo decision, the decision to go to the moon. Uh, you know, Kennedy came into office in 1961 as a fairly junior, had, having been a fairly junior senator, uh, you know, thrust into a, a, the political uh, highest office in the land. And, um, and there were, and replacing of, replacing the general who won World War II, to be perfectly honest, Eisenhower. And um, I, know, I know Sir Bernard Montgomery would disagree with that, but nonetheless, um, uh, Eisenhower was this sort of fatherly figure who'd been on the public stage a really long time. And, um, and now we have this young man who in his first weeks in office faces a whole series of crises and there's people publicly saying, you know, he's not up to the job. You know, I, I'm sorry we couldn't keep Eisenhower because he would have been much better at all of this. And by the way, Eisenhower is sitting now at his, at his home in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, writing nasty op-eds and, and letters to people talking about how bad this new president is. And in the aftermath of Yuri Gagarin's flight on the 12th of April of 1961, followed within a week by the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion film, in which the CIA backed Cuban uh, exiles who were going to retake Cuba from Castro. And it was, a, it was an utter disaster. Those two 
very public failures were laid at the feet of, of Kennedy. And Kennedy says, I have to do something to change the subject. And that changing of the subject was, let's go to the moon. I, I would contend, the way I phrase it repeatedly is, you know, between about the middle of April and the end of May, the moon was in the seventh house, Jupiter was aligned with Mars, the cosmic tumblers had clicked into place, and Kennedy could stand up and say, let's go to the moon and be cheered for it. That was the window. Anything before that, any time after that, and it would never have happened. Uh, and so they struck that particular deal at a very unique time. And on the 25th of May, Kennedy gave this famous speech where he says, I believe this nation should commit itself before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And, um, and he only gave about three speeches in his entire presidency that was about space flight. This was the first. He did one in, uh, in the fall of 1962, and he did one at the UN in the fall of 1962. That's pretty much it in terms of talking publicly about space. You know, he would answer questions in press conferences, things of that nature. But in terms of real speeches, uh, it was not something that defined his presence. And Apollo 1 doesn't, doesn't go so well, does it? What impact does that have on the Apollo program? Does that, do people start to question whether it's, a, whether it's too premature, whether it's a valid mission? Uh, does progress, does development towards the lunar mission slow down because of it? Yeah. Well, so Apollo 1 is the fire that took place on the launch pad in January of, of 1967, killing three astronauts. That was a horrendous tragedy, no question about that. But that particular tragedy uh, really did uh, set back the Apollo program by, you know, a year and a half roughly. And, um, and, and they found that contrary to what NASA thought they had done, they thought they had created sort of a perfect structure to undertake these activities. They had a system in place to oversee things, they had checks and balances, they had configuration control for technology. All of, all of that was in place. But what they found in the investigation in the aftermath was that there was all this shoddy work being done. And it really was. Um, and there were elements inside of NASA who knew that this was, the pro was a problem uh, beforehand. There had been investigations into the, into the contract work being done on this previously. They found... Uh, deficiencies in the efforts of the contractor. They tried to correct those, but were not successful in doing so. And, um, and from that standpoint, it was a real black eye for the agency. NASA managed the investigation itself, pretty honest with what was taking place. But, uh, but you know, having somebody investigate themselves for a failure that they had made always raises uh, questions. And uh, Congress then got into it. Uh, they began to hold hearings. Uh, Jim Webb, the NASA administrator, would go up and, uh, and there's no other word to say, obfuscate, uh, walk around uh, the block trying to, trying to make excuses. And in fact, one journalist at the time says, I guess NASA, N-A-S-A, stands for never a straight answer. And, um, and commenting about this sort of thing. 
So NASA took a real black eye as a result of that. It cost ultimately uh, the NASA administrator, Jim Webb, his job, and uh, other people had already been sort of ousted by that time as well. Uh, but they got the program back on track and they made some significant modifications to the spacecraft. Pretty much everybody who has looked at it has said, you know, at, at some level, as tragic as that accident was, it may have saved lives during the mission. Uh, because had there not been those modifications made that we only made because we saw the problems after the fire, uh, we could have had significant accidents on the way or to the moon or back, mm -hmm. and we could have lost crews, you know, out in space. And we never did. But, you know, it's unfortunate that we lost three astronauts in that process. Was that tragedy, could it be chalked up to inexperience or was it because people were so urgent to get there before the Soviets? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, the clock was constant and throughout the Apollo program. Every individual uh, that I have ever talked to uh, associated with Apollo, and that's been a, a sizable number, always keenly felt the clock. And, um, and the people working at NASA in the 1960s, in 1961, when given the mission to go to the moon, they sort of put their heads down, started working on this, and really didn't come up again until the end of the decade when they succeeded with the first landing. And, and many of them talked about how the world had changed. The American, American society had changed during that, that period of time. Uh, you know, the counterculture had emerged, the anti-war protests, civil rights crusade, all of those things, most of these individuals sort of didn't pay a lot of attention to. They were focused elsewhere. And after Apollo 1, as you say, various measures and developments put in place to ensure that these accidents, these sorts of accidents don't take place again. There are missions, Apollo 4, 5, 6, 7. These are sort of testing the boundary, pushing that bit further into space. And then Apollo 8 is the first one that com completes a lunar orbit. Right. Were there different ideas about how you actually get to the moon? Because presumably it's not quite as simple as there's the moon, we fly straight at it. Yeah, and um, there were indeed. And those decisions had to be made very early. Uh, you have to build the right technology to accomplish the mission. And uh, Werner von Braun, a very famous figure in, uh, in NASA and in America at the time, uh, the director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, the builder of the Saturn V rocket, um, he argued that the best way to do this would be uh, something that was known as Earth orbit rendezvous. You send up several spacecraft into orbit, uh, and there you combine the, the elements that you need and launch to, to the moon from there. And, um, and that would essentially require the building of a space station. Uh, some place to rendezvous at in orbit. And, uh, and, and Von Braun very much wanted that space station. He'd always thought that that was the best way to do exploration beyond Earth orbit. Uh, you can use that as a jumping off place to go to the moon, go to Mars, any place else you want to go. So, uh, so he lobbied very hard that that was the best way. Others suggested what they called direct descent, which was build a really big rocket, much bigger than, bigger than the Saturn V, launch it, point it to the moon, and away it goes. And uh, neither of those elements actually 
cho were chosen in terms of the final analysis. Um, one, one that was called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous is the one we actually used. Uh, you put everything on a single spacecraft or in a single rocket, pretty big rocket, but not as big as what would be needed for direct ascent. Uh, you fire it off to the moon. You orbit the moon with a, with a command ship and you send a small lander down to the surface. That's, a, that's what they did with Apollo. There were other possibilities. I mean, some of them were truly crazy. It didn't get very far. Like, uh, we're going to send astronauts. We're going to let them land on the moon. But before they go, get to the moon, we're going to send a supply, of an automated supply vessel to land on the moon. Uh, then when they land on the moon, they can walk over to the supply vessel, which will enable them to come home. And, you know, the NASA leadership looks at that and, no, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not sending somebody to the surface of the moon without knowing that they have a way to get home. <laughs> it, that's, that sounds like it's straight out of a science, a bad science fiction disaster movie. Bad science fiction movie, right. Uh, and it didn't, you know, they, they talked about it, they argued about it, but in the end, it never got now, at this point, the Americans are closing in. Uh, well, we know that with hindsight, they're closing in on landing on the moon. What about the Soviets? Are they as close? Are they are they getting anywhere near being able to put people on the moon? Uh, yeah, the Soviet program is very, very quiet. It doesn't uh, it doesn't announce what it's going to do. The Americans had a very public program and everybody tracked the Zamet and astronauts were everywhere talking about this on television and other places about how we're going to accomplish these things. So it was no secret, but um, but the Soviets never talked much about this. In fact, they denied that they were in a race with the Americans. We know in the aftermath of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were very much in the race. And periodically, they would sort of steal the march on the Americans as uh, some big milestone was about to take place. The Soviets would go do something that uh, that sort of upended that particular success. My personal favorite uh, is the spacewalk in 1965 on Project Gemini. Uh, the Americans had, uh, in, in part of the Gemini program, they wanted to rendezvous, dock, and do spacewalking, get out of the spacecraft, do stuff. You would need to do this to go to the moon, so you might as well figure out how to do it. Gemini is a good place. And, uh, and Gemini 4 was the first mission in which an astronaut got out of the capsule and floated around in space to try to do a few things. Um, that was scheduled for the summer of 1965. And they flew that mission. But just a couple of months before, uh, the Soviets, without any public announcement ahead of time, uh, launched um, a cosmonaut team into, into orbit. And one of them, Alexei Leonov, got out of the spacecraft, spacecraft and did a spacewalk. Uh, Again, stealing the march on the Americans. Now, it was done with such a haphazard approach, he nearly died. Um, it had, so the, the, uh, the capsule had sort of an inflatable airlock that would sort of protrude outside of where the hatch was. And the Leonov would then go into this, button up his, his suit and all that sort of thing and open the other door, let, letting the air escape and go out into space, which is what he did. But his suit was not really designed very well for this. He ballooned up like the, like, like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Uh, he couldn't move very well, and he could not get back into the, into the hatch. 
Finally, he had to let air out of his suit, open it in space to allow him to get back in so it would deflate enough so he could get back in. That's incredible. It's an incredible story. Uh, And uh, he got back in, he closed the hatch, they repressurized, he was fine. But uh, it was such a close-run thing, and it was solely because they wanted to beat the Americans one more time. And only because of the ingenuity of the ast—I'm uh, sorry—of the cosmonauts, uh, were they successful. So much more negligence within the Soviet program. Well, I, I yeah, I, I wouldn't use the term negligence. Um, uh, much more haphazard, no question, and not and not well pra- well planned as sort of a stepwise approach. Uh, but they they tried to be as cautious as they could in terms of the safety of of, of the of the flyers, but. Um, and they were building, you know, a landing craft that would be able to do essentially what the lunar module did on uh, for the Americans. Uh, they were building a big rocket, the N1 rocket, which was comparable to the Saturn V rocket. So all of these things were underway. They never got to the point where this technology was used. And when they tested some of it, particularly the N1 rockets, they blew up four of them. Uh, now, th- nobody was aboard. These were automated tests, but uh, but it, by by the time the last one uh, was attempted, the Americans had already come had already gone to the moon several times, and uh, uh, and they still were not able to get their rocket to work. So, the the program was not as far along as uh, as certainly the Russians hoped, and certainly uh, uh, the Americans feared. So by the time NASA gets to Apollo 11, are they confident that they will be able to land on the moon successfully? Are there any remaining challenges here, or are they pretty sure this is going to take place? Oh, sure. I mean, they're, they're, they're always concerned about the success of this, and that's the reason there are the multiple missions. Uh, you know, each one has, has a, a sort of a, a, a workload associated with it, and it's it, it is a stepwise approach. We're going to we're going to do rendezvous and docking on this mission. We're going to do spacewalking on that mission. We're going to do this and that and the next. And each time they complete those steps successfully, then they move on to the next. But if for whatever reason that particular mission failed, they would repeat it the next time around until they got it right. So you have enough missions. You know, maybe you don't land on the moon until Apollo 17, but they didn't think that that was what would happen, but it's conceivable that it could have. By the time they got to Apollo 8 and the circumlunar flight, they thought they were in pretty good shape. But, you know, Apollo 9 was a test of the, of the lunar lander in Earth orbit. They weren't even going to the moon for that one. They were just going to test it, see if it would fly at all. And it did very well. Apollo 10 was a test of the lunar lander in lunar orbit where those guys got down to within about 40 miles of the lunar surface and weren't allowed to land. That must have been gutting to be one of those people. Yeah, they were not necessarily delighted with that, but that was the mission, and they flew the mission as they were intended to. By Apollo 11, they had they had the technology down to the point where they thought they could do this okay. But you know, if you had to abort, you could also do Apollo 12 and land. And, um, and, and they were prepared to do that. And, you know, there were a couple of instances during the landing of Apollo 11 in which 
you know, there were people thinking we ought to abort this. I mean, there's a famous instance. Uh, they're coming down and they're running out of fuel. Uh, and the reason they're running out of fuel is because Neil Armstrong had to take control. It was an automated landing normally. Had to take control of the uh, of the lander because when they started coming down and started looking, they were where they were going to land was this huge boulder field. And he said, well, we can't land here. So he hits the jets and they move on down the field a bit and they keep looking and they keep looking and they keep looking. And while this is all happening and you, you can hear the broadcasts and the, and the radio transmissions back and forth, there's not a hint of fear or concern anywhere. Uh, but, you know, Buzz Aldrin is calling out how much fuel is left. Uh, he's calling out, you know, our altitude, how, how the drift moving forward, all of these things. And um, when they finally touch down, you know, Neil opens the mic and says, Houston Tranquility Base, the, the Eagle has landed. And, and the response from Houston is, you've got a bunch of guys turning blue here. Thanks. We're, <laughs> we can breathe again because they knew how serious this was. It's a remarkable story. So it wasn't just the case that computer systems were landing this spacecraft. It was the ingenuity, the calmness, the bravery of the astronauts themselves. Right. And they demonstrated that over and over again. Mm. There is no way that you can you can fault these guys uh, for their for their bravery and their sense of mission and understanding of that mission. So once they're on the moon. What do they do? How long are they there for? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the first thing they're supposed to do is go into crew rest. And, <laughs> and you know, so the transmissions back and forth are sort of, you want me to go take a nap? <laughs> I'm on the moon. <laughs> you can keep me from getting out of the spacecraft because you can order me not to do that, but you can't order me to sleep. And uh, but so they were there for a few hours. Obviously, there were things they were doing inside the, inside the lunar module. Uh, as well. They did get a little bit of crew rest. Uh, but then, you know, several hours later, Neil gets out um, and uh, goes down the, the landing leg, which has sort of a, a makeshift ladder on it, and pops down onto the lunar pad, and, you know, announces that he's taking his first step on the moon and his famous words, you know, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Everybody knows that phrase. How did they get off the moon then? It's quite hard to launch people into space from Earth. Clearly, there's less gravity on the moon, so it's slightly easier, but presumably it's still quite a complicated feat actually taking off from the moon. Yeah, there's nothing easy about space flight. But, um, you know, they had, uh, they had a lunar module that had been designed as a two-part system. Uh, there was a landing uh, piece of this, uh, a, a, a rocket that could be uh, throttled, started, stopped, and so forth, that, that was able them to land. Uh, on top of that was a crew compartment. And between the landing piece and the crew compartment, there was another little rocket. Uh, and the big concern was you've got to be able to fire that rocket to get home. And if, it, if it, for whatever reason it malfunctions, these guys aren't coming back. And uh, so you've got to make sure that, the, that, uh, that this thing will will um, uh, will successfully fire. They used hypergolic fuels that when they are mixed together, they just automatically ignite. And uh, and they were able to, to take off using that, that system. And it worked beautifully. And the lower piece of this, the landing part of it, became sort of the launch pad. 
for them taking off to go back up. It worked perfectly every single time, but um, but that's how, how that's how it was structured. You described how they landed on the moon, and it was a an accomplishment of of their ingenuity, their their flying skill, uh, and whatnot. How much computer power did the spacecraft have? Because, I mean, I remember being at school with our scientific calculators and being told this is the sort of the same level of computing power that got man to the moon. So I just wondered if there was any truth in that. Absolutely. I mean, you you have more computing power in your in your cell phone than uh, than those guys had. Yeah, uh, you know, but computing technology was in was in its sort of uh, you know Neolithic era at, at, at that particular point in time. So the um, the lunar computer that they used was a was a very simple by our standards piece of technology, but it was very sophisticated by the 1960s, and and most importantly, it was uh, small and light enough to fit on a spacecraft. Anything that flies, everything's about weight, and um, and consequently, you've got to get it down as small as possible, and, and the the team that built the Apollo guidance computer, the Stark Draper lab at MIT, did a remarkable job. Uh, you know, basically when that contract was let in 1962 to build this guidance computer, they hired about 500 of the best people they could find anywhere, brought them together to build a, to build a computer that was, you know, it had to be a certain size, it had to be a certain weight, it had to have certain computational capability. And they really shrunk uh, the size uh, of a complex machine for the time. And I would contend, if you want to look at, at sort of technologies that made a deep impact, that would be one of them. You know, those guys, they came together and they built this computer that did its job. And at the end of the contract, they dispersed. They go to corporations, they go to universities, they go to think tanks, they go to all kinds of places, taking with them the knowledge that they had gained in this process. Uh, and I would contend that that was a huge uh, push for, uh, for these technologies and their development all through the 1970s in which my, uh, microcomputings took off during that era. Uh, and, and some of that was the result of these people uh, and the impact that they had on the broader, broader industry. So how much did the Apollo program cost and was it worth it? I think you've kind of answered the second part of that question. <laughs> so the costs, uh, and there have been different numbers that have been used, but they are all in about the $25 billion range in, in, in dollars from the 1960s. You adjust for inflation, you know, it's a couple of hundred billion. But um, I would contend it was worth 10 times that. Uh, and it was worth that money largely because of the geopolitical strategic situation that existed in the 1960s and, um, and the manner in which the Americans sort of took the lead uh, in this Cold War environment. The Soviets never challenged again in the same way that they did in the 50s and 60s. Um, and that wasn't entirely because of Apollo, but it's certainly a part of it. And the emerging nations find themselves looking at this rivalry and saying, which side do I want to be a part of? And clearly they want to be a part of the winning side. And it looks after Apollo like it's going to be the Americans. The Russians themselves didn't necessarily think Apollo 11 meant that they lost that race. As the NASA chief historian, I spent a lot of time doing world histories with people who were associated with the Soviet program. And in talking to the uh, 
and talking to several of them, they all said, you know, Apollo 11, we didn't think we were done at that point. You know, our first thought was maybe they just got lucky. And when we saw Apollo 12 in the fall of 1969, which was able to land the lunar module, and, and the guys in Russia looked at me and they said, you know, the fact that they can do that, we will never be able to do that. You know, clearly we're beat. So the space race in many ways was one of the key strategic battlefronts of the Cold War. I would contend that it was. One in which nobody got killed, at least not intentionally. Now, you know, both sides lost, lost some people. Apollo 1 crew, a Soyuz crew was lost. Uh, but, but generally speaking, this was done, done without loss of life. In terms of the Apollo program then, and the uh, and the benefits that it brought, did it help military technology? You've already mentioned that there was a, a generation of scientists who went off after working with NASA. What about military technology in particular? Were there any tangible benefits from the Apollo program to the the U.S. Air Force, for instance? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, you know, so lots of the technologies, especially the microelectronics finds its way into all kinds of advanced weapon systems. And, uh, and so, you know, you, you find it in the jets of the 1960s, the F-16, the, uh, you know, the F-15, uh, the F-18, all of those technologies uh, have vestiges of microelectronics that originate with some of this development work. It's significantly modified, no question about it. You don't you don't just pull something out of an Apollo spacecraft and stick it in an airplane and fly it as is. But, but there's ways in which this, uh, this technology does uh, find its way into these other systems. Same is true with targeting, navigation, all kinds of other things associated with weapon systems. Uh, you find it directly in the microtransistors used in ballistic missiles. Uh, you find it directly in the context of advanced uh, space systems that are used to uh, support military systems uh, and military activities in the aftermath, navigation, communication, various types of reconnaissance. And I could go on and on. So it's not only having uh, an effect on the ideological struggle between communism and capitalism, it's actually improving the U.S. and the West's ability to deter Soviet aggression with hard military power? I, I would contend so. So why did the U.S. stop going to the moon? Well, by the time of the Apollo, I mean, at the time of the Apollo program, when we were demonstrating our capabilities, uh, we have succeeded in achieving what we had set out to achieve. And, uh, and the sense of crisis that had dominated the decision-making in the early part of the 1960s was no longer present. Um, so you stopped. Yeah, and you don't see a reason to continue because, quite frankly, we didn't find anything on the moon we really wanted. Had we found something there, something worth money, we would have continued to go, but we didn't. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, Roger. That's been a fascinating talk. My pleasure. What a brilliant episode. What a brilliant guy. I could sit and speak to Roger for hours about NASA and US space programs. If you want to know more, he does have a publication that he's written in collaboration with NASA. It's entitled NACA to NASA to Now, and it explores the development of US space power and US space agencies across 
a number of decades. I hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.